Hello and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg, joined once again by my producer, Hemel Javeri. Hemel, how are you? I'm great, Ted. How are you? I'm doing very well. I want to do some more Q&A in the back half of the show, but first things first, we've got a very exciting guest today. So without further ado, I'd like to bring on one of the world's most famous chefs, an entrepreneur and uh, owner of, runner, operator of too many restaurants to list here, uh, Mario Batali, and I'm told a football fan. A huge football fan, and quite honored to be here. Thank you, sir. Thanks for doing this. Uh, let's, let's talk some football. Uh, do you have a team? Of course I have a team. I'm a big fan of the recently deposed Seattle Seahawks. Uh, how do you watch football? Is there a, a, a bar you go to? Do you watch at home? Uh, where are you and, and who's there when you're watching? I am generally in front of the biggest screen I can find at my house because I like to be able to hear the game as much as I like all the excitement. I have to fight my children who prefer to watch Red Zone. I'm like, are you kidding me? Red Zone isn't football. Red Zone's like the edited version of football. So, like, there's one TV in the kitchen that has either the Red Zone or my game, and then I watch my game on the other TV. And then I'll go in and see what they're doing. But just to watch the scoring doesn't – that's not watching a game. Yeah, I mean, it, it misses the, uh, the pregnant pauses, if you will, between yes. the action. Exactly. And the strategy and watching the coaches and watching any of the players and watching any of the interaction that happens. And in any case, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm such a fan of the game that it doesn't even offend me that much. I just can't watch it that way. Now, uh, we talk food a lot on this podcast, and obviously that's your area of expertise. What's your favorite football food? Well, my favorite food in general of all categories is anything anyone else makes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that said, like for me, football food depends. Like when I do... Uh, big game dinners or, or, or meals, I try to do something from each of the teams that are competing if I can. But there are towns that don't necessarily give up anything like that. So for me, I like things that are simple. I like a one-pot something always percolating on the back, like a chili or a stew. I like, like a wing variation. I like some kind of a fried seafood. And let's not forget the most important thing of all, I like to have some crunchy tortilla chips, a little guacamole, and some very spicy salsa. Well, that's it. So you brought up something very interesting and, and something I didn't consider, which is regional foods as football foods. Uh, as a Seattle guy, uh, what's your food for watching the Seahawks? Well, I'm happy to watch. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to eat some raw oysters or some fried oysters or have a pot of chowder simmering on the background. But I mean, invariably, something will come up if I go down to the Pike Place Market that I can put some kind of hot sauce on and just enjoy it. So we've got four teams left here in, in the playoffs. Uh, New England Patriots, what's your food? Uh, probably a lobster roll, a mini lobster roll, but also fried clams, Ipswich style, I'm a big fan of. That sounds delicious. I'm also, I should note, extremely hungry while recording this, so this isn't going well for me so far, uh, <laughs> but it is uh, creating somewhat of an appetite for lunch. Uh, what about the Pittsburgh Steelers? Is there a Pittsburgh food? Well, there kind of is and there kind of isn't. If you've been to Pittsburgh recently, there's a place over where the wholesale vegetable market is that's been there quite some time. It's called Primanti's, and they do these sandwiches that just drive mm -hmm. me crazy. And they could be just a sub, but they have hot French fries tossed into them while they melt the cheese on them. So like a spicy Italian grinder subby kind of thing with cheese and hot French fries on it. How about Wisconsin, Green Bay? Green Bay, you have to go to Usinger's and get the, you got to get the best sausages in America. You have that, like a bratwurst with a nice spicy mustard, a little sauerkraut. I mean, that's a classic game winner. 
And finally, the, the last team uh, still involved. Uh, what have you got for Atlanta? Is there anything that Atlanta brings to mind for football for you? Not so much for me. But that said, what I do is I do something kind of southern, like we'll do some kind of a barbecue or something, or we'll do some kind of like a Georgia situation, a take on the hot chicken that they do in Nashville. I think this is a, a really cool way of going about it. Because usually, for me, it's just like, well, I like wings, I like pizza, I like nachos. That's kind of where I'm at, and it doesn't really matter who's playing. But it sounds like you've got... Right. Uh, Those are good, but that's a very low level of commitment, my friend. Don't you get involved a little <laughs> bit more than that? Uh, you know, I wish I did. I know this is inspiring me. What do you think makes a good football food? I think uh, that it can't necessarily need a knife and fork, but it can't, you can't have everything that doesn't need something like that. But you should be able to have one hand with the football food and then one hand with the beverage. And now that doesn't preclude having something that you lean out over, maybe like a little TV tray or some kind of a little paper plate situation because there is a chance that you will drip and you don't want to drip on someone's couch. Now, I grew up with an Italian mother eating a lot of Italian food, but I don't know that there are a ton of Italian foods that translate, outside of pizza, which is fairly obvious, that translate right. to watching football. Is there any specialty you've got? Mm. You know, we do like a pot of meatballs, but I make them small enough that you can pick them up with a toothpick. Mm -hmm. There's also, if you've ever been to St. Louis, up on the hill, which is their version of Little Italy, they have this dish called toasted ravioli. Love toasted ravioli. And they ravioli. serve it with, right, so they serve it with a side of dipping marinara sauce, and like that's totally a pickup by the hand food. But you're right, a spaghetti thing is not going to work. An eggplant parm like sub kind of thing can work, but you have to think in small buns and really go with kind of the hot dog size bun, not the giant, big, thick, grindery ones. Now, you mentioned that you prefer food not prepared by you, which I think would come as a, as a big surprise to anyone who's eaten food prepared by you. Uh, right. Uh, why? So, so are you mostly sitting back on football Sundays and, no. and doing takeout? No. Anything? no, no, no. I'm making it. Don't get me wrong. That's my favorite kind of food. That is not where I end up going to for food because I'm too exacting. I need it to be precise. I need it to be thought out. So I'm always doing it myself. Now, uh, you've got a, a wing recipe up at the Tabasco website, and obviously yeah. chicken wings is sort of the seminal football food. Uh, tell me about these chicken wings. What do you like about them? Well, there's three levels here. First of all, there's the marinade, then there's the cooking, and then there's the dipping sauce. If you're sophisticated, a dipping sauce can be as simple as just a little bit of yogurt mixed with a little bit of hot sauce or some salt and pepper and some chopped chives. Or it can be very complicated. I've got a white barbecue sauce, kind of traditional to Alabama cooking in this recipe, mm -hmm. which is yogurt, apple cider vinegar, a little chipotle Tabasco, and a little bit of molasses, which gives us this kind of odd funk. But the marinade is the crucial thing. And if you can do it with enough time, but not too much, because you can over-marinate a wing. For me, 12 to 16 hours is about as much as you want it to go. And in it, there's some ancho chili powder, there's some cumin, and there's Chinese five-spice powder, along with a whole mess of the original red Tabasco sauce. You let them sit in that for a while. It almost cures them, and then when you cook them on the grill or under the broiler, they get this magnificent crispy outer texture that's succulent on the inside with kind of almost like a barbecue pull. See, that's a big thing to me, is, is how the wings are prepared, because I feel like uh, fried is sort of the standard, and to me, I kind of like the crispiness that comes with a fried wing. Uh, right. Can you get that from the grill and from the broiler, and how would I go about that if I don't want to get my kitchen smelling like oil? 
I don't like them so that they're so hard on the outside. For me, I get a better thing with a grill pan or a cast iron skillet or the broiler itself because I like the capricious and whimsical nature of some crispy bits and yet some pieces that are a little bit on the softer side. So there are crispy bits to the places that are the closest to the flame, but the rest of them still have almost like a roasted chicken feel. But keep in mind, if you put a little bit more sugar in your marinade, you'll be able to get it a little bit more crispy and a little bit more of that kind of dark, deep, golden brown, almost fried nature. But again, I don't really like to fry at the house because it really does make your house smell like a fryer. And you, you know, the recipe you've got here, I would say, is probably a non-traditional chicken wing recipe. Usually I'm thinking hot sauce and butter, maybe some celery salt, maybe some lemon pepper, uh, but not a lot else. Do you feel like we're doing enough with the chicken wing? Because it seems like such a versatile piece of meat, and yet I, we're, we're sort of chained to this traditional buffalo style. Well, I like the buffalo style too, but that's just like, you know, if you come to my house and all I did was take some hot sauce and put a little butter in it, you're like, what the fuck did I come to my, pardon my French, why the heck did I come to my Batali's house? Like, I got to jack it up a little bit. Also, for like, if you do a tricky marinade and a dipping sauce, it takes literally the same amount of time as if you did it the one other way. So I just do it to make it a little bit more fun. Plus, the Tabasco people are really cool. And when they said, hey, you want to develop some recipes, it's not like I hand them the old one. I hand them a new one. What makes a bad chicken wing? How can someone screw that up? Overcooking. They put them in that fryer so long and they're too hard and there's no succulent underneath. Like having a fried crust is crucial, but having it be dried through on the way inside is just no way. Also, just plain old ordinary sauce and butter, almost good enough for me. But I like a secondary dipping sauce. And what makes a good so, – so now, uh, this has come up actually recently on the podcast. I know a lot of people are really down on ranch versus blue cheese. What makes a good secondary dipping sauce? Well, I like it to have a certain amount of dairy. I like it to be a little bit creamy. The ranch for me tastes a little bit like granulated garlic, which doesn't ever make me very happy. And I like blue cheese, but I often find that that turns some people off. So this kind of yogurt, molasses-y sauce gives you a little sweetness for me. But again, like if I was sitting at someone else's house and they put ranch or blue cheese in front of me, I'm never going to say, oh, I don't do this. Like if they brought it to me and, and they were proud of it, I would be excited enough to try it and I would be polite enough to finish it. See, that's actually really good to hear because I feel like a lot of times, uh, especially with, with chefs as accomplished as yourself, you might hear people uh, a little bit judgy about foods we consider, I don't know, lowbrow, I guess, and it doesn't seem like uh, you feel that way. No, if, if, if you spend your whole time trying to be highbrow, you will desiccate and dry out your entire life's experience, always trying to be at the next three-star Michelin restaurant. There is too much time in great life to be spending most of my time worried about whether this is good enough for somebody or good enough for somebody else. Like, I want it to be delicious, but what's most important to me when I go as a guest to someone's house, that I can, if they made it pretty good and I'm pretty happy about it, I want to be invited back. So I'm going to give them the big kudos, the slap on the back, the high five, and the tweet. This is something I'm hoping you can educate me about a little bit, because I, I only barely remember it. I'm, I'm 35, and I remember when I was like eight or nine years old, buffalo wings sort of came out. Like, it, it, was, uh, it was not something we had ever eaten when I was very young. And then the Where local, were you born? I was born in, uh, on Long Island, and, and, we okay. had, and our local bar sort of, you know, one day in like 1990 just got buffalo wings, and then buffalo right. wings were everywhere. Do you remember life before buffalo wings? I do, actually, because I'm much older than you. Okay. <laughs> no, like, like for us, like when I was in college, which is 1978 to 1982, there was no wings at Rutgers. There was like pastrami sandwiches and hot dogs, like hot dogs 
and, and sausage was what preceded wings. Like, we didn't have a wing snack like that. They would put popcorn on the table, but there wasn't, like, such a go-to snack. And in all honesty, nachos weren't even really popular at that time, although chips and salsa were. So I remember, like, prehistorically, remembering before nachos, before, I mean, there was always pizza, but there was before, before what you would consider big game football snacks being ubiquitous across the country. Yes, I remember that. That was a different time. I mean, also keep in mind that this is during the rise of food as entertainment itself. So suddenly people are aware of regional variations in deliciousness. So it's, it's happened in your lifetime when food went from zero to 60. And it's a great time to be involved in food and kind of love it because there's so much to get involved involved in if you want to, and yet if you don't even really care, it's still pretty good. So why did we sleep on wings for so long? Well, because someone obviously didn't think it was important enough to leave Buffalo with the recipe. <laughs> Um, I, I've read that you you mentioned be, uh, going to Rutgers, and at Rutgers you worked at a, a Stromboli place, is that correct? Not a Stromboli place, the Stromboli place. I worked at a place called Stuff Your Face in New Brunswick, New Jersey, the originator of the great Stromboli, and still to this day one of the great places. Whenever I am within 50 miles of New Brunswick, that is to say just about any site on the other side of, say, Bayonne, I will try to get to Rutgers and have a Stromboli right there on Eastern Ave. And what did you learn from there that you took on? Because obviously you're associated, again, with more uh, sort of highbrow type, type food. Um, did you pick up anything in the strong? Well, this was my first big break. Okay. Of course, it was my first big break. What I really picked up was the excitement and the energy from working together with a team against a collective kind of common goal, which was to serve everyone that wanted to come in that night. And we were a small kitchen, and we were a busy kitchen, and we would do hundreds of covers every night in a 40-seat restaurant. And working together with people, even if you didn't necessarily love them outside of work, working together with them because you knew you had to get something done and being able to count on people and have them rely on you to get your job done in the kind of separate files departments of the different areas of making the strombolis and then serving them, it was a really passionate thing that eventually led me to want to become a professional cook. It was the first big thing for me. I ask a lot of people this question, but I feel like it, it's slightly more important with you. Do you have a favorite sandwich? You know, I have to say, traveling around the country, I have them all over. If I had to choose one right now today, in New York City, I would say either the Katz's Deli Pastrami Sandwich or the Cod Sandwich on ciabatta with homemade tartar sauce at Pearl Oyster Bar on Cornelia Street. Those are both very good calls and both sandwiches I myself have uh, enjoyed. Uh, anything else uh, in terms of the Super Bowl uh, coming up, anything else you're thinking about making got in the hopper that's like this is going to be the knockout Super Bowl food, maybe the next big football food to come? Well, I got to say, I'm going to wait until we find out what are the two teams because that's how I'll do my final research. Secretly hoping, I mean, you know, as much as, much as we always dog Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, like they're really good and Boston is a very easy town to cook from. So, so maybe we'll see Boston and maybe we'll see, I, I suspect we'll see Atlanta the way they rolled over Seattle last week. That'll be a little bit more of a challenge. I'll have to go into my regional process and see what I can come up with for Atlanta. The fried chicken always a good method for, for Atlanta. At least I've had some. Can't really go good. wrong. Are yeah, there exactly. are there two cities you would like to see in the Super Bowl in the future for food purposes? Uh, New Orleans and Seattle. Yeah. I Can they? Uh, what would be your New Orleans? Football I think they're in the same. No. Oh, New Orleans! You put together a pot of jambalaya and then you get some red beans and rice, and all of a sudden you got a party going on. 
right, you can't go wrong. Yeah. New Orleans, there's a thousand things. I can make po' boys from, with oysters and clams or oysters and uh, shrimp. Like, there's so many things down there. It's just fantastic. I was there two weeks ago. That is, without a doubt, pound for pound, the greatest gastronomic city we have. I would 100% agree with that. I think probably on a per capita basis, you're not ever going to do better than New Orleans for good food. I agree. I got to let you go, and I definitely need to go eat something. But, again, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Any predictions for uh, the NFL playoffs from here on out? I'm going to go with Boston all the way. It's killing me, but they're just that good. Yeah, I feel the same way. It seems. I mean, like... New England. Sorry, we call them New England, right? We call them New England. Yeah, they're Boston, though. Yeah, I think so, too. All right, well, that's Mario Batali, the, the famous chef and entrepreneur. Uh, thank you so much. Again, you can check out what Mario is doing with Tabasco at Tabasco's website. And one last time, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, buddy. Hemel, that's Mario Batali. Pretty exciting. Uh, I apologize, though, for all of the meat talk. Well, that's okay. You know, I, I have learned to live in a world where people really love meat. Meat, I have to say, it's incredibly good. Um, you know, again, uh, all, all due respect to vegetarianism, but I do really enjoy meat. I want to actually ask you a question. So, in terms of your dedication to vegetarianism, I know you've said you're not into food that has touched meat, like on a grill mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. But do you have, so if I'm, if I were, so if you were to come over and I were to prepare you food on the grill that has been used to make meat, but there is no meat on there right now, does that bother you too or no? No, that's all fine. I think it's just when, like I, so in our cafeteria at USA Today, they'll use the same grill, like they'll grill like hamburger patties and take, immediately take the hamburger patty off and then put like a grilled cheese on there and that I can't do because that's just like marinated in juice. But if you like clean it, um, I'm okay with it. Yeah, and we were, I mean, we were out uh, at lunch recently and you found out that yeah. the, I think it was the fries were, were fried in, in beef fat and I can get why that is basically just eating meat. That's basically, it's the, yeah, it was the fried green tomatoes and yeah, they're fried in beef fat, which is really unfortunate because... I've had them before, and they taste pretty good. <laughs> what about things like, like, do you eat Twinkies? Because that's made with lard, right? Yeah, we're super, I mean, from an early age, we were taught to read the ingredients to make sure that it didn't have, like, lard or, um, what's in, what's in gummy bears? Um, oh, like gelatin. gelatin. Yeah, that's from horses, right? Or I guess it's from the, the hooves of cows or horses or whatever. Yeah, like it's all animal byproduct stuff. So there's like a whole list of stuff that looks innocuous, but we're still not allowed to eat it. Like most like flavored yogurts have gelatin in them. So we're actually, or have like uh, retin in them. So we're not allowed to eat those as well. Yeah, I, was, I, I should note, I'm not actually from horses now, but I think like that, that is the, it's basically the same stuff that they make glue yeah. from, right? Because like that's always the old joke about horses is like off to the right. glue factory. It's yeah. like whatever the gel stuff uh, comes from from the I believe from the hooves, but uh, you're, you're going to have to. Uh, someone will have to. You'll have to Google that at home. Uh, I, to continue the meat talk, though, um, and before we get into some Q and A, I got to say I, I have received my first delivery from Blue Apron, which is a sponsor of the show. Uh, I got. I've made two meals so far. Actually, to be to be uh, honest about it, I made one meal and my my wife made another. We had. I made the. Uh, Peabeal style pork, which came with spinach and rice. It was really good. Uh, legitimately, it was 
fairly easy to, to put together. Didn't really take me too long. Uh, everything was, was really fresh in the delivery, which was good. Um, really liked the food. The meat was great. Uh, then then my, my wife made a seared chicken uh, this, uh, that, that also came this week. Uh, had mashed potatoes with it and kale with mushrooms in it. Also really good, really fresh, uh, really enjoy the experience. Uh, very straightforward how to do it and sort of taught me some things that I might not do otherwise. On the pork there was a salsa that was made from oranges, jalapeno peppers, scallions, uh, some olive oil, some salt and pepper, and I think that was it. And it was just not the type of thing, oh, and cilantro, and not the type of thing I would ever think to prepare at home. But now it's something that, now that I've seen it, and now that I've done it, it would probably add to my repertoire because it was so delicious. Uh, it is, uh, again, it's a, an affordable and, and a, a good way to keep uh, a lot of variety when you're cooking at home. Uh, you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash for the win. Uh, you'll love how it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So that's blueapron.com slash for the win. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Hemel, let's take some questions. All right, let's take some questions. All right, um, so we actually did pretty good getting sports questions this week, um, which yeah, is good because we had such a food-heavy first half of the show that I was like, oh, man, like, if we're going to, and again, I love talking about food. I know you don't love it as much as I do, but um, but, but I, I, have the, I have the guilt, you know, and I was like, ah, if it's going to be an all-food show, then poor Hemel's going to have to, like, put it together and listen to it when she's producing it, and she's just going to have to hear, like, food talk and food talk and food talk, and... Again, I'm good with it, but, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to and, – and it's got to be a sports show. It's got to be a show about sports. Yeah, I, sports I, I think we got a good mix today, though. I think we got some sports cues. Right, and, and it was a sports-specific food talk. And I think that, uh, you know, the, like as, we, as I spoke with, with Mary Batali about, like, so much of the process of enjoying football for so many people, I think, is all wrapped up in, in what we eat while watching football. So I, well, I, I was going to no about that. I was going to ask you about if you cook for football. Like, do you, because I know you like to cook. Like, do you cook for, like, tailgating stuff? Uh, I do. Uh, not for tail. I, I haven't done a lot of, like, outdoor tailgating. Uh, I haven't honestly been to that many NFL football games. I've mostly watched them at home. And as we've discussed, like, I haven't, I haven't watched it a ton the last few years. When I do watch, uh, and, and when I was, like, uh, sort of like very, very dedicated before I was on the road for the postseason, really, when I was still very dedicated to watching, like carving out my Sundays for watching NFL football. Mm. If it, it would depend, like sometimes I'm just too lazy for it. Uh, but and and I do, as I discussed, like I do like wings as a that's sort of like what I feel like eating whenever I'm watching football. And the thing with making wings at home is it tends to make if you're frying them at least it tends to make your whole house smell like oil. So my wife always hated that. So I would do it like once every few weeks, mostly for me for football. It's takeout, and I'll get like takeout wings, and I'm not gonna get takeout from multiple places. So I'll get like one or two other things that whatever wing place offers. Uh, my local place actually just went out of business. Very sad, but they had uh, they had little mini meatballs as well as the wings, and I frequently got the meatballs. <laughs> All right, cool deal. Anyway, sports questions. Uh, sports questions. Uh, first one comes from our colleague Maggie, uh, who this is for you, I assume. Um, yes, actually, because she mentions you by name. <laughs> is is there any variation of yoga? as in goat yoga or beer yoga, which are both new, apparently new yoga trends, 
Is there any one of those trends that you would be okay with besides, I guess, straightforward yoga? Um, so I may, I may need to think about this a little bit more and maybe at the, at the end of the podcast, I can come back and change my answer. But my initial response is no. Like, and if you have been listening to this podcast, you will understand that you already know that I don't have a high tolerance for like, uh, silliness and like flights of fancy, things like that. And I tend to be, um, really straightforward, but yoga is like the one thing that I think that requires patience and time and quiet, which right now modern day society is just so against, like everything has to be interesting, like everything has to have a twist to it. And people are like incapable of just like turning inward. And for me, that's what yoga is about. Like that's what yoga should be. It's about like practicing and being in the pose and being mindful of where you are not distracting yourself with beer and goats and kittens and, and all that other silliness. Like, to me, that's just like the antithesis of what yoga is. So no, there's, there's no kind of, you know, extrapolation that you could add to yoga that I would be okay with. But there's also like, I also read an article recently about like, people bringing their cats to yoga. Like, that makes no sense. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. Well, and that's, a, that's annoying that, I mean, if, if it's not cat yoga, and, and this is not as someone who would ever, I think, go to a yoga class. As I think we've, we may have discussed on the podcast, I know we've discussed in person, like every once in a while I get myself on a kick where I'm like, hey, I'm going to do yoga now. And mm -hmm. I find it actually like super effective for making myself more flexible and like just sort of feeling better about stuff. Like I do think it's a, a worthwhile exercise, especially for me. Like I'm not a very flexible person, so it sort of balances yeah. me out a little bit. But mm -hmm. I don't think... I'm so inflexible that I don't think I could ever, and I know that yoga is all about, like, not judging other people and not looking around and not, I don't think I could ever do it out in public, so it's not a big deal for me that people bring their cats, but as far as I understand, and, and, and from what I know of, little I know of yoga, breathing is super important, and if there were cats in the room, I have enough of an allergy that I really wouldn't be able to breathe all that well, so that would bother me. Well, well, yeah, and I mean when you're in yoga, like, you are supposed to be focused on the present, and you're supposed to be focused on, like, what your body is feeling and how you're reacting to it. Like, you're really supposed to turn your gaze inward, and all this other stuff is meant to distract you from that unpleasant thought of, like, oh, I want, like, these, un you know, people don't want to, like, sit in quiet, which is why we've got goats and cats and beer and all this other extra stuff, which, again, it's just, like, it's beside the point. Like, you need to be able to sit in a quiet room and do yoga. And if you can't, you're missing the point. And it's a discipline thing, too, right? Like, I, I've done, uh, I've did, I did for, for a while, uh, I did Tai Chi, you know, and it, it's sort of like a similar thing, like a lot of stretching, a lot of breathing. Uh, and, and it's very much about, like, sort of staying on this course and, and mm -hmm. keeping discipline to the thing. And I feel like if you're bringing in goats, that adds an element of randomness because you can't control the animal that exactly. is, is hypocritical to what I believe yoga to be about. That's that's 100% true. It's And so I go to a studio that's actually very disciplined studio. They put on music, like, very, like maybe they'll have some of that, like, you know, harmonic, like, uh, yoga music, like, turn on at the very end of class. So we don't even use music during class. And I know a lot of yoga studios actually will use, like, 
you know, music, like pop songs and stuff like that to motivate class, uh, to motivate classes and like keep the energy level up. Our studio doesn't even use that. So it's very much like you're in a quiet room and you're listening, you know, you're listening to the instructor, but you're also have nothing else to do, nothing to distract you from the fact that like, crap, this pose really hurts or, you know, I'm really like using every single muscle I have right now to, to stay in this pose. Um, so it's really about like kind of building that like mental toughness as well. So to me, that's a really a big part of yoga. So if you're kind of, you know, if you're into the goat thing and the cat thing and, hey, I need a beer to make it more fun. <laughs> I'm just laughing at, yeah. if you're into the goat thing, then yeah, anyway, <laughs> go on. I'm just saying, I, I, I'm not that kind of a person. Like, I'm very much a tough love person, so this, no, I'm sorry, Maggie, none of this is cool with me. I, guess... I think it's fine if Go on. The one thing I will say, sorry, I would say the one thing I will say that I'm not including this in this is, like, the mommy and me classes, like, where you do yoga with your baby, because I think that's fine. I think that's great for new moms to, like, try to practice yoga and, like, connect with their kids and stuff like that. And it's, like, a good, it's a good activity. It gets you both out of the house. It gets you, you know, it gets you, yeah, it gets you active. That sounds like a reasonable thing. But I would say, just to your point about, like, the pop music and stuff, I think that at least my experience with exercising it's always about like finding that energy and so I always listen to music when I exercise uh, I understand a lot of people po listen to podcasts when they exercise and I appreciate you doing that and I should say you know like pump pump uh, keep pushing go get it go get it you can do this yeah but, you got this you can do it yeah but I need like a beat usually and so I kind of get it like I get that yoga is not that type of exercising but I do get the appeal of having something like sort of just like keeping me pushing forward and music generally does help me do that I haven't tried like again my yoga experience is entirely limited to like things I pull up on YouTube and and sit along with in my living room and very light stuff but I can get if you're like trying to do like real hardcore exercising yoga to me, in my experience, I think there there might I could get the music thing, but I feel like your yoga is fairly hardcore, right? You're you're well, pretty hardcore. Yeah. No, I get the music thing. Like I totally understand why people do it, and it actually is a lot more like fun. But now that we've now that I've like switched to this studio, it's it's really about discipline. Like you really have to be able to sit in a quiet room without any distractions and be like, okay, I'm I'm about to like push my body for you know, 60 minutes, and there's nothing to kind of take you out of that headspace. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, I, I, and anyway, I go to Honestol Yoga, by the way, should give a shout out to my yoga studio. But, that's, that's big. If you like it enough to give it a shout out, I think that probably means it's, it's a good one. Uh, let's go on. Let's move on to, uh, this is from Michael Donato, guy I've met in real life a few times, Mets fan, uh, a reader from back in the day. He wants to know, uh, what crazy amenities are the Nationals building into their spring training home that's so expensive? Now, this Hemel... Uh, yeah, give me some background. Okay, yeah, it doesn't... I mean, it, and uh, it's an interesting question. And so, it's complicated. And the Nationals, I guess the, the first bit of background information is that the Nationals this spring are moving into a new spring training complex in West Palm Beach, Florida. It's built in partnership with the Houston Astros, who they're going to split it with, and also with the county, uh, which, like as, as has become tradition in sports, uh, taxpayers do almost always pay for sports facilities in, in some form or another. So uh, supposedly that is running over budget, and there have been reports that the Nationals are not as 
driven in their pursuit of certain free agents because of the money that they're spending on their spring training complex. Now, first of all, I should say it's a very necessary thing for the Nationals. Where they were, uh, and I have a lot of experience driving around Florida during spring training, uh, they were in Vieira, Florida, which is when the first time I went there, actually, I went on the nerdiest spring break ever. My senior year of college, we went to baseball spring training, and we drove out to see the Expos, who were in that same complex. And Vieira did not even exist yet in 2003. It was like a, the stadium, and then around it, sort of like uh, different various housing units going up, and like coming soon, the town of Vieira, right? So. Uh, I can't imagine it's a huge draw for baseball players to go to this town that like barely exists yet and in sort of rapidly expanding Florida. Plus, on top of that, it was about an hour from where the Mets play in Port St. Lucie, an hour from where the Braves play in Orlando, an hour from the Astros, where the Astros were in, in Kissimmee. Now, the Astros are moving as well. Uh, so there was no opportunity for a Nationals player to play a road game without spending an hour on the bus. Uh, moving into the new home means not only will they have the Astros right there, so there's going to be all sorts of you know sim games and real games between uh, not just the Major League Astros and Nationals, but also probably you know various levels of the minors in camp, uh, I think is a very useful thing for teams and something you see more in uh, the Arizona spring training with split conferences, mm -hmm. uh, split, split uh, facilities rather. And uh, they're also pretty close to where the Marlins and the Cardinals play and still not that far from where the Mets play. So logistically, it's a necessary thing, I believe, for the Nationals to have this complex, uh, probably for the Astros as well. And now the Braves are the team that's marooned uh, out in Orlando, and they're going to move to Sarasota near where the Orioles and the Pirates play. So they're going to find a new home, too. It's sort of uh, the whole Grapefruit League, the Florida spring training uh, scene has sort of split into the two coasts now, and all of the clubs are starting to move a little bit closer together, uh, which again, I think is a huge advantage of training in Arizona. There's never a bus ride longer than 45 minutes uh, mm -hmm. on that side, on that side of the spring training. And, and in Florida, it's almost always bus rides of 45 minutes or, or longer, or for reporters covering it all, you know, car rides of 45 minutes or, or longer. So I know uh, the roads of the Grapefruit League extremely well, probably better than anyone should. Uh, and uh, on top of that, you know, obviously, you know, state-of-the-art facilities, you're, there's going to be uh, big costs. They're going to put in all sorts of, you know, every type of training facility that Bryce Harper could ever dream of, and, you know, they're going to make it, uh, obviously, you know, I've been to the website, it's going to be fan-friendly, there's going to be suites, there's going to be all of those things. But I kind of find it difficult to believe that the Nationals would really be drawing on the exact same budget for player payroll that they would be for building their spring training stadium. And I have to figure that uh, building the stadium, the, the complex, as quickly as they have tried to build it, you kind of have to figure on some overage costs going into it, and, and I don't know anything about building baseball complexes, but I just have to imagine that it's not like they've been completely blindsided by extra costs. You're trying to put together this this big baseball complex in, in two years or whatever it was. Some things are going to cost money that you didn't necessarily expect, but you could sort of count on it being one thing or the other. Like on, on an HGTV show, you know, there's always water damage, or you always need a, a column instead of a beam like something's always going to come up that's what yeah, I. yeah something's always gonna gonna mess up but it sounds like this is an ex 
this is like excessive cost, right? Like mm -hmm. to, to interfere with a totally different part of the operation. Well, yeah, it would be. And, and that's why I'm sort of skeptical about the, and like, I, it's not to knock the people making the reports, but here's what I'll say, and, and I'll try to connect some dots and, I don't want to cast dispersions here, but I, I'm not the first to do so. Like, uh, there's a good article about the situation in the in the Washington Post from Chelsea James, who's their Nationals beat reporter, and the because the original report said that specifically noted that they would be pursuing uh, closer Greg Holland or catcher Matt Wieters more seriously were it not for these overage costs in their construction. Then Bryce Harper tweeted about how he would prefer having Holland and Weeders to a nicer spring training complex. He said Holland and Weeders and the greater than sign uh, team store at spring training or whatever. I don't remember the exact wording. And then Adam Eaton, uh, who is the, the, one of the newest nationals who's going to be an outfielder for them this year, he retweeted what Bryce Harper had to say. Now, Bryce Harper, Adam Eaton, Greg Holland, and Matt Weeders are all clients of the same agent, Scott Boris. And so... I kind of feel like if that news is spreading out there, it doesn't take too much sort of squinting and conspiracy theorizing to guess where it's coming from. So that is what I will say about that. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, like, but you were pretty clear on the Nationals needing a new facility, right? Mm -hmm. That that logistically it, it has to be the way it is. Um my question for you is a little bit less about the Nationals and more about just spring, spring training in general. I know with hockey, there's a lot more, like, it seems to be pretty collegiate, especially among teams, um, because the league is so small and all the players know each other. Is that part of it? Like, did, did teams kind of think that the Nationals were ostracizing themselves deliberately, so now they have to move? closer or doesn't that really it was just like they picked a bad location to, to no show. yeah i think they probably just picked like i think and, and i don't know you know why they would have wound up there if, if they thought more teams would start spreading to that side of the state if it was just remember this was it was the expos who moved there uh the expos yeah. were were uh govern you know working with a much much different type of budget than the nationals are for sure so maybe it was something to do with you know the cost of the land uh, or the or the what it took to you know to get a facility built there was easier to pull off for the national for the expos whenever they did it and i think it was uh in like the in the late 90s or the early 2000s like fairly late in the in the expos run mm -hmm. uh so i don't think that it's i don't think that i think that spring training i think everyone in the league just sort of understands like this is practice and we practice. all need practice and and it should be you know it should be as easy as possible for everyone i don't think anyone wants to ride long bus rides i don't think anyone thinks i don't think anyone on the braves is thinking like well i don't want to be dealing with the nationals i hate them for putting themselves there i don't think it, i don't think i think it's more of a friendly thing in that case okay that makes sense um what about bryce harper tweeting something like that out like, does he get in trouble for that, for, like, having an opinion? It's an interesting one. Uh, I wonder about that, and I wonder, I feel like Harper is such a star that that's the type of thing where it's like, eh, it's so innocuous, and ultimately his heart's in the right place, right? Like, if he's saying, I want the team to be better, and I don't really care about the team store, yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's exactly what you want from your players, right? You should want your players uh, encouraging the team or wanting the team to go out and, you know, invest in, in winning, right? So 
I feel like he'll probably be okay there. You know, I could see that if he said, like, I can't believe we traded for Adam Eaton, then I think that he would hear probably both from the team and from the the agent as well, right? But uh, And he did tweet, like, wow, when it happened. But who wasn't thinking, wow, when it happened? It was a fairly big trade. He's obviously, again, yeah. invested in his team's success. And mm-hmm. I think it was one that will benefit the Nationals, certainly in the near term, which is what Harper should be concerned about since he is heading for free agency in a couple of seasons. So I think he's probably clear to, to tweet that out. I think that probably... If it were a guy, maybe, you know, if it were a lesser player, or mm-hmm. and, and it's not fair that it works like that, but, it, you know, you got to kind of go into having Bryce Harper understanding that, like, this is who he is, and this is what he cares about, and this is how he's going to be, right? He's putting forward this yep. image of Bryce Harper that it's about winning. Uh, he should. And I kind of feel like mm-hmm. if you're running the team, wants- you're like, oh, whatever. Yeah, he, he wants to make baseball fun again, so... Yeah, and it's most fun, I think, if, for him, if uh, if the Nationals are winning a lot. Um, yeah. So, so for sure. Uh, next question. This is a very good one. Uh, something I think about a lot. This is from Dennis has a podcast. That's uh, Dennis Holden, a guy whose podcast I've been on a couple times. A uh, listener of this podcast. He wants to know if you could have one exceptional skill in a sport, what would it be? This is a great question. Do you want to go first? I already have my answer. It... Um, you go first. I'm thinking about okay. it. Okay, I don't really have to think about it. I knew right away when he asked me that question, if I could have one exceptional skill in a sport, I would want to be able to dunk a basketball. Oh, like, good. Good. no freaking question. I don't care about anything else. I don't want to be able to throw a great spiral. I don't want to have a slap shot like Ovi. I want to be able to dunk a basketball because it looks so freaking fun. I wish I could do that. I wish, I wish, I wish I could do that. I think you're probably spot on. I think that's probably it. I was going to say, I mean, I think dunking is so far out of the question for me. Yes, yes, I would never be able to do it. Right, so, and I, I don't know, like, so it, it's a tough one because it's like, well, then, do I have that leaping ability? Otherwise, am I that explosive, or is it just only when going up for a dunk that I can dunk? Am I limited? Is it like, a, is it, is, which is the skill here? Because I feel like I'm a yeah. much better, ba- I, I was going to say having just like a, a spot-on jump shot. I'm a horrible, horrible, horrible basketball player. I like can, I can handle the ball a little, and I can pass the ball a little, and I can rebound a little, but I cannot make the ball go in the hoop. It is a real issue for me, and, and <laughs> I like basketball. I really enjoy playing basketball, but I never want to go do it because I know I'm going to be an albatross on any basketball team I am ever a part of. So my initial, and and I don't play basketball at all. I mean, I play baseball fr- pretty frequently, but I am, I'm not the best at baseball by any stretch of the, uh, of the imagination, but I'm good enough with my skill set, like at least comfortable enough with my skill set to say like, no, I don't. Uh, yeah, sure, I would love to be able to hit monster homers. That would be dope. But it's I'm not going to make the major leagues if I can only hit monster homers. I'm not going to make the, the NBA if I can only dunk. Like, there's if there's only one skill, there's no one skill that's making me a professional, right? So if I'm thinking, right. like, long... It's, it's, it's not even about what skill. 
because you need a whole host of skills to make it as a professional. Right, exactly that. Like, I don't even have the dedication to do it, right? Like, even if... Even <laughs> I, I don't if, even want to do it. Even if it was like... That's exhausting. I mean, unless it was like, oh, my skill is I hit a home run every single time I come to the plate in baseball, then you probably do make the major leagues, right? Like, if they, even if you can't play the field and you can't throw, like, I can't, you know, they would just... Someone would find a spot for me if I could homer every time I came to the plate. But I'm not... Uh, he says one exceptional skill. That seems like an uh, inhuman skill. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, my, like, again, I said, like, my first instinct was saying, like, because I've known guys, I've had friends who were just, like, don't miss shots. Like, they just don't miss open shots. And I've always been so envious of those guys. Mm-hmm. And I, because I just miss them all. I miss them all. And, yeah. uh, and so my, my first thing was, was jump shot because it feels like also a skill that can last you uh, a really long time. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know if you've ever played pickup basketball, but, like, sometimes if you go down to the schoolyard, like, when we would go and, as kids and play or in high school and play, there's, like, an old guy hanging around the court, and <laughs> someone asks, and you have five dudes, so the old guy comes and joins your game, and 100% of that time, that old guy is, like, dead on from outside and you are so much more physically talented than that guy and I'm faster than him and I'm stronger than him and I'm you know even not that I can jump but I'm this is an old guy right so I can jump higher than him but that guy is dominating me in basketball because he doesn't miss and I only miss right so so jump shot is a, is a thing for me but now that you brought up dunking like if that's in the realm of possibilities yeah it's absolutely dunking I, I think you've got such a practical take on this because you've, you've really managed to kind of think it through to, like, various different scenarios. The last time I played pickup basketball was probably when I was in seventh grade, and I was probably forced to do it for, like, some intramural tournament or something like that. Um, no, I'm, I'm purely talking about just, like, this one exceptional skill that has no value outside of just feeling incredible, I bet. Like, every time I see somebody dunk a basketball, it looks so amazing. I, I don't care if I can do anything else with that skill. It's not going to be useful to me in my daily life, but that's the skill that I want in a sport. <laughs> I would say that if I were, like, if, because there's a, there's a basketball court atop the, the parking garage in, in Tyson's Corner yeah. in, in the office, right? So if we happen to be, like, on the way to the car, and you were, you just like, just like sort of casually dunked a basketball, that would be like the single most impressive thing I had ever seen in my life. Because you are, you are not, uh, you're not terribly short, but you're not, you're not the tallest. Right, right. No, to give this some context, I'm about 5'2", 5'3", so yeah. It would be so freaking cool if you could dunk, like on a 10-foot hoop, and like we're just, and like Hamill just like throws down a windmill dunk uh, on the way to the car, like it's like no big deal. I would, I don't think we could do the podcast anymore because I would be too impressed to talk to you. That would be an amazing superpower if I could have it, and that's what it basically would be. Oh, my superpower is that I can dunk. <laughs> that would, yeah, that's it. You, you win. Um, uh, okay, we got a couple more questions. Um, oh. One All of right, them, okay. one of them is from he. Uh, this is from CC, uh, who didn't put you on the the tweet, but I think it's something you're uh, is you're definitely mentioned as an interest. Mm-hmm. He asks. Recently, we've seen big beards and that weird alt-right haircut. I don't know what the weird alt-right haircut he refers to. I, I know what it is. I know what it is. MLB fashion trends. What's the yes. next hair fashion in MLB? So first, tell me what the weird alt-right haircut is. 
Oh, okay. So it's hard to describe it, um, but the alt-right haircut is kind of, and I say this with all respect to former FTW podcast host Nate Scott. Oh, I was going to say, is it the Nate Scott? I was going to ask that. That was the first thing I thought of was, like, is it the Nate, like, the shaved on the sides, like the Macklemore yeah. haircut? Yeah, it's like the Macklemore. It's, like, shaved on the sides <laughs> with, like, you know, just the weep at the top. That's the alt-right haircut. Um, and I feel bad that the alt-right is co-opting something that hipsters were doing a couple of years ago. When did that become the alt-right haircut? Isn't that just, like, the haircut that guys in their 20s have now? So, to be perfectly, to be perfectly frank, it's the haircut that a subsect of, like, white hipsters in their 20s had, and, like, the alt-right movement apparently just, like, latched onto it, I think, and that's, like, a very popular haircut among that subset of of folks. Yeah, I just googled alt-right haircut on Google Images, and it's showing that haircut. So it's that, it's like the shaved on the side, sort of swooped over hair. Yep, it is, yeah. So so that's the alt-right haircut. And well, to and be Bryce fair, Harper that's... has that haircut, right? I don't think yeah, Bryce Harper's part of the alt-right, but he has yeah. that haircut. That's true, that's exactly. So to go along with that, a lot of MLB players also had it. Um, and I just don't think we realized that it was permeating, like, fashion was actually big among that movement, but apparently they've also got a really, like, hyper-specific formal style of dressing that I, I don't really want to get into. No. Um, yeah, let's just, uh, let's not talk about them anymore. <laughs> but alt-right, yeah, so that's the alt-right haircut. That, but it's also the Bryce Harper haircut. And I, would, I think the, I, to me, it's like the first guy I saw who was, like, rocking that haircut a lot was Macklemore. I don't yes. know why, it's just like, that's the Macklemore haircut to me. It is, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like, if we're going back, like, four or five years, it was definitely Macklemore who kind of started that trend. Which, you, um, know, you don't think of Macklemore necessarily as a trendsetter, but in that case, I do feel like that was the first, like, like when I saw Nate's haircut, I think I <laughs> chidingly told him he had the Macklemore. <laughs> that's very true. Um, anyway, so what's the question? The question was, what's, what's next? What's the next one? So we've seen beards, and we've seen that kind of, sh you know, oh, God, this is difficult. Um, what about the know. Ted Berg? What about the Ted Berg? The te I mean, the Ted Berg is just letting your hair, just having a great head of hair and having, like, a 5 o'clock shadow permanently. That is kind of what I'm working with, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's funny, like, my hair, you know, as important as my hair is to me, I find that, like, whatever haircut I get... As long as they're like within the same general parameters, it always winds up looking the same. Like this is just how my hair looks, and mm -hmm. no matter like I think if I went in and was like give me the alt right Macklemore or whatever, it would still come out looking just like my hair. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, that yeah, I think that guys should well, try to rock this, just like a you know a, I don't know a short on the sides, a slightly longer on top, a nice you know like a nice thick head of hair. If you got it, you should I think show it off. I think that one thing, thankfully, that's making its way out is, like, the, the man bun. Um, I don't see a lot of that in MLB for sure, uh, but I think that's definitely moving away there from are being... guys. There are a lot of guys with, like, the, I would guess it would be a hybrid of the Nate Scott and the man bun, like, where it's shaved on the sides and, like, like Josh Donaldson is big for, like, shaved on the sides and sort of, like, pulled back on top into a bun. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. I might have to Google image him. But yeah, there's like that. I think what I saw at the Golden Globes, like I said, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. It wasn't so much about the bushy beard, like the big unkempt beard that was so popular for a while. But it was a little bit, it's just like, it's just the more groomed facial hair beard now. I think that's actually kind of big. Like, I think the whole thing a while ago for baseball players and athletes and men 
was to go nuts with their facial hair, and I think it's a little bit more formal. It always, I've never, like, like I've said, I've never gone that far. Like, every once in a while I'll get the idea to grow a beard, and I'll get to having a beard, and then I get sick of it. Or I try to clean it up, and I go a little too far, and then I'm like, ah, screw this, I don't want to have a beard anymore. Um, yeah. it's, it feels like the big bushy beard, which I've never, I've never rocked, uh, mm -hmm. would just get so hot and so, like, ungainly and so gross. Like, I spill food all over myself. I would be spilling food all over the beard. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I, and, yeah, so I think, I don't know. Two hockey players who are known for their facial hair, San Jose Sharks, Joe Thornton and Brent Burns, their beards are, like, like that is not sanitary. I understand that people love those beards and it's, like, part of their personality, but those have got to go. Like, they're they're just to the point where it's, like, not hygienic anymore. And I've, so I've got friends with that beard, you know, so, like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold back, but, yeah, I think it's a, it's a little bit gross. It's a little bit gross when it gets that. I, I don't know. It wouldn't be for me. It wouldn't be. It obviously isn't for me. I don't have that beard. Uh, next for me, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like... One thing I've seen, which is strange, um, and I've noticed it, uh, especially among, like, the, the Latin guys, mm -hmm. is a haircut where it's, like, sort of, and, and maybe there's a name for this haircut, and maybe it's a bigger thing elsewhere, but a haircut mm -hmm. where it's, like, all shaved, and then there's, like, a poof of hair right on the back, which is kind yeah. of, like, it's an interesting look. It's just, like, it's, like, a very non-traditional haircut. Um, that kind of fascinates me, but I don't know that that one's really going to catch on. Like, that feels like a passing fad. Uh, I would yeah. like to see, like... I think we've seen more time, more guys in basketball with like the high top fade, which doesn't translate mm -hmm. to wearing under a baseball cap. But I love the high top fade. I think that's a cool look. I know that one. That one too is probably on the backside of its like ironic rebirth or whatever. But uh, you I, don't see it in I, baseball for sure. I, I think that um, what we might be seeing a lot of is actually the Tom Hardy, which is shaved head but a full beard. I think huh. that might be our next trend. Is that? Um, I'm now I'm looking up Tom Hardy. Uh, I see many different facial and hair patterns on this guy. I would say there's like probably a, at some point the like. It's the Mad Max look. It's the Mad Max look. Okay, um, and that's cool. Uh, again, it wouldn't be for me because I'm not shaving this head. Uh, it's not gonna happen. It's too good. It's All right, too. But if I, okay. So if I had to pick the next trend, I'm gonna. I see. I've seen Drake Rocket. I've seen Tom Hardy do it. Shaved head, full beard, uh, coming to a postseason near you. I, I defer. I defer to you. I think you're probably <laughs> you're probably right on that. Um, I would also not be surprised to see like the gross mid to late '90s baseball goatee come back. You know, like some guys start with those bushy beards, start just like shaving off the sideburns parts and letting the the like actual goat goatee grow. I could see that happening too. Um, he didn't ask this question, but one thing that I really wish we saw more of that I see in the NBA a lot, which is not related to facial hair, but it's just like style overall, is wearing a turtleneck with a blazer or like a suit jacket. It's a, I, I know it's like a super retro trend, but I think it's making a comeback, and I really hope that like we see a lot of that in like the MLB postseason. Like I think Bryce Harper would look great with it. <laughs> I could see Bryce Harper wearing that. Uh, yeah, I, I have nothing to add. That I don't, I don't have, I don't want to, I don't want to comment publicly on wearing a turtleneck and a blazer. Um, there's nothing good to come out of me speaking of people who wear turtlenecks with blazers. <laughs> anyway.
Um, and I don't like judging people for their fashion choices, honestly, because mine are so completely set in my ways. And I don't know. I kind of just judge anyone who cares in some to some to some extent. I, really, I'm excited to see Bryce Harper rock it because I think he will eventually. Bryce Harper seems like he's sort of drifting in the wind fashion-wise, right? <laughs> like, he has not yet figured out, like, what... Because he has always got a new thing going on, right? Like, it's like, now he's wearing yeah. red contacts. Now he's got the Ultimate Warrior face face paint. Now he's got, like, a big, crazy uh, alt-right haircut. Now he's well, got the crazy beard. Like, it's just like, it's always a new thing from Bryce Harper. Well, you gotta... You, understand, you know, he's young. I always forget how mm. young Harper is. Super young. He's... Super young, and he's still in that phase where he's like actually comfortable experimenting and like wants to try new things, versus the rest of us are just like so comfortable in our in our ruts that we're like, oh, forget it. I don't I don't even want to bother with like trying to get a whole new wardrobe for for six months. Like yeah. first of all, and he has money to be able to do that. Um, I also think he just got married, so I definitely am curious to see how like his his. Um, Wife is gonna. Oh man! Success. Like if if Bryce Harper just starts wearing like pastel sweaters all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Amazing. I, and all I would right. say, yeah, I agree. I, when I was Bryce Harper's age, I was still like, I'll grow my hair out, see how it looks, and then ultimately you get to a point where like whenever I start trying something, I just look in the mirror. I'm like, that's not what I look like, and then I go back to what I look like. That's, that's basically how I work. Um, um, all right. right. Uh, la last one. Um, well, we have one question that is just, what's sports? <laughs> That's, I, I don't know. You're going to have to take that one. <laughs> I think, actually, I do have feelings about this. I think that a sport, I could say it was not sports, and, and this is with all due respect to many Olympic sports, but mm -hmm. I think many of the things we call Olympic sports are like contests. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, and there are... Maybe exceptions, because, like, boxing is a tough call. But, like, to me, judged events shouldn't count as sports. Um, and, yeah. again, it's not that uh, a floor routine in gymnastics isn't an incredibly athletic pursuit and a beautiful thing to watch and a, an incredibly skilled uh, thing that requires just remarkable skills, right? I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to diminish it at all. I just don't think that, I think that that's more like a, dance to me if it's going mm -hmm. on on judging and a sport i believe should have a clear victor from the outcome of the thing and and i would even say that like uh, to me like a race is kind of like a contest more than it is a sport because it's just one skill it's just like who is the fastest at this thing so uh, i would i would be like a small i would have a very narrow definition of sports which is like a pursuit, an athletic pursuit uh, among uh, two or more participants with a clear victor based on the rules set within, based on like objective rules set by the sport. And I get that with judging there are uh, like yeah. things like, well, a triple Lutz in ice, in figure skating is worth, you know, right. this many points or I'm not going to deduct points. Uh, I get that there are objective measures under which those things are judged, but ultimately it comes down to subjectivity. And to me, uh, that is besides the nature of sports. I, I don't know if I agree with you because I have a very different definition um, and it's definitely not that narrow, but it definitely is just more along the lines of is this a competitive thing? And if it is, it's a sport. So 
It's almost where we're in. And but I then, but then, like, but but um, yeah, but the Miss the Miss Ma- the Miss America contest. That's a competitive okay. thing, right? But that's not it's a sport. like an athletic and en- it's an athletic endeavor that's competitive. That is sports. So it could be like like horse racing. A lot of people would say that's an athletic event that's competitive and uh, that's sports. I guess horse racing counts as sports, and that's a that's a race and it's a contest. So maybe yeah. maybe um, yeah. I mean. Yeah, and then it's weird because it's not even like the humans are only like a very small part of that actual contest. Yeah, it's mostly horse, right? Yeah, it's mostly just about the horse and how hard you can hit that poor thing. (laughs) And like how little the guy on the horse is. Yeah, how Um, little. Or lady, depending on where you're horse racing, I guess. I don't really know a lot of jockey subculture. So if there's like a lot of prominent women jockeys, I mean, no offense, but I don't think there are. I, I don't think there are either. I think we're basically all guys. So. It seems that way. Um, I wonder why that would be if you're looking for the smallest person, but I don't know. I don't really know why the women haven't really broken into... Uh, maybe this is something we should pursue. Like, why are there not more high-ranking women jockeys? Male <laughs> jockeys. Um, um, right, because uh, I mean, women are, in general, smaller, right? So it would seem like you could find a much smaller woman than you could a tiny man. <laughs> I don't know. Um, something, to, something to look into. Hey, it may be a market inefficiency for any of you uh, thoroughbred horse owners listening to the show. <laughs> Consider a woman riding the horse. Consider a woman riding a horse. All right. Um, last one. Uh, this is a silly one. This is from Stexvex uh, at STXV. Um, he just wants to know... Is pitchers and catchers report the most meaningless date on a sports fan's calendar? And I will say no way, because um, it's exciting. I think uh, it is, I mean, it's still going to be a month and a half before you get to watch real baseball. But I think that if you're a baseball fan, especially like coming out of the winter, it's been so bleak for so long that like pitchers and catchers means like here comes the hope. Here comes like maybe our team is good and i think fans of all 30 baseball teams convince themselves by the end of every spring that their team will be good uh which is usually incorrect but they do um so i think that's kind of fun and i also think that the nfl makes a big deal out of releasing its schedule which is not a thing that shouldn't be a thing there shouldn't be a t- i'm sorry i get that people watch every single thing involved with the nfl that is the most absurd thing is like oh well they're going to announce the preseason schedule so we better televise it that's not an event that that doesn't count. That's a, just a, you're just scheduling events. <clears throat> I agree with you. Like I, I wish I disagree with you, so we could have something to fight about. But I agree with you a hundred percent. The Pro, the Pro Bowl, the Pro Bowl is another good one. But the Pro Bowl is well, I think even the NFL realizes that the Pro Bowl is pretty pretty meaningless. Um, one thing that's really climbing high on the charts for me in terms of being completely irrelevant is the amount of outdoor games that the NHL tends to tends to schedule. It used to be this like cool thing that happened once a year with the Winter Classic and it was awesome. And now the NHL added like Heritage Classics to it. And then last year or sorry, early this year they had the Centennial Classic the day before the Winter Classic. Um, and that is quickly climbing the charts for like completely irrelevant sporting events because there's so many of them that it, it, it has lost all kinds of, of, of specialness to it. Um, but to me, pitchers and catchers, for exactly the reason you described, is a phenomenal date on the calendar. Like, to me, it means, oh, my God, it's, there, there is a light at the end of this cold, dark tunnel that we've been slugging through. And for me, it means I'm probably 
going someplace warm soon. So, like, it's like, I mean, you gotta, uh, like, especially, like, by the time you get to February, if you spent the winter in New York City, you are so eager to see grass and stuff. And then you go, uh, I gotta, I recommend spring training. Like, if you're a baseball fan and you want to go see your baseball up close and like it's so fun to go to spring training um it like it's just and and i say this even as someone who's like getting paid to go there and who has to go work when he's there and like can't just you know take in a game and and drink a beer like it, it it's fun it's fun work but it's still work you know and 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 it's in many ways sort of like it's kind of hard but it's super awesome because there's green grass and you get to see the players like so close and you get to see how hard they throw and how like like big and strong they are and how far they hit the ball and it's just this access that you just like to the actual gameplay and it doesn't mean anything it's not meaningful gameplay but uh you get to appreciate the skills involved in a way you just never do from the tv or from even watching at the game it's funny because you did a whole bunch of facebook lives last year from spring training and i didn't really understand how close you can get that fans can actually get until I saw those Facebook lives, so I'm super motivated to to go once at least in life. In life, yeah, it's great. Like you can just go up, like especially like early in spring when when they're still practicing in the morning. You can just like sort of walk around any team's facility and walk right up to the batting cage and watch Bryce Harper hit home runs. Like you, you stand him from 15 feet away, and you never do that. You never do that. And like you don't even even if you go to the game and you have the best seats in the house, you get to see Bryce Harper take like four swings that day. Whereas now you get to see him take like 25 swings. Wings, and they're all monster homers, and it's just completely dope to watch. Yeah, it sounds dope. But... All right, well, let's go. Um, we've, again, cleared an hour here, which uh, <laughs> seems to be our, our habit, which is never our goal. Um, but, you know, it's fun talking. We had we had four questions, so we answered them. Um, we had four questions, and we had Mario Battalion, so, you know, it's a win. If you have stuck with us this long, and I keep forgetting to put this pop at the beginning of the show, uh, please subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, check us out on SoundCloud, uh, check us out on Stitcher as well. We are at ftw.usadelay.com. Hemel and I are both writing there. We're both on Twitter and every other social media thing you can conceive of. Uh, Hemel, thanks for talking. Thanks for having me. And for everyone who's still listening, thanks for listening, and peace out.